This call is now being recorded. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice, and host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all my listeners, as they do every time, who come back again and again and again to support this show and almost approaching 600 interviews with authors. So thank you all for your continual support of my program and listening in and supporting the authors who are writing these great books. And today I have Diana Rivenberg on the phone, and she has a new book called The New Corporate Facts of Life, Rethink Your Business to Transform Today's Challenges into Tomorrow's Profits. Good day to you, Diana. How are you? I'm doing well, Greg. How are you? Great, great. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth, and thanks for spending a few minutes with us actually tackling a subject which is pretty intense and has a lot of areas that I think our listeners are going to be very interested in hearing about from your perspective. Um, but I'm going to let my listeners know just a tad bit about you, Diana. She's the CEO okay. and president of Strategic Imperatives, Inc., a global consulting firm that helps clients create sustainable, profitable, competitive advantage by developing transformational strategies, bold leaders, engaging cultures, and resilient organizations. That's a mouthful, but we're going to get into that with you. Um, her clients include Novo, Nordisk, uh, um, Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group, and PVH. And you can contact Diana Rivenberg through her website, which is www.strategic-imperatives.com. That's strategic-imperatives.com. Or on Twitter, at Sustainable Orgs. That's where you can reach her, at least a couple of places, and we'll put more on this as we move along. Now, again, this is a very dicey subject. Uh, all of the people out there that are listening today, Diana, who are in management of companies, whether it be big or small, are fighting what you call these global forces that are having a significant impact. What are some of those global forces in your estimation that are impacting not only large businesses, but even for our clients that are smaller business owners with 20, 30, 50 employees, all those things that are affecting them as well. Oh, yeah, Greg, there, there are certainly so many factors out there affecting businesses. And when I, in writing this book and, and doing the research, I really boiled it down to seven critical ones. And uh, one would be disruptive innovation. So we take a look at the, the great pace of change and how you know new not just new technologies but new business models are coming into play and just new new ways of, of working together so you know the way we did things even five years ago is, is so much different today economic instability is certainly another and not just uh you know it's not just when you're when you're going through a recession that you have challenges but even in a growth period you're going through challenges and then you've got different economic conditions in different parts of the country or different parts of the world uh, a third is societal upheaval. So taking a look at what's happening in society, again, it could be in your local community. It could be in um, different countries that you might be operating in. It could be somewhere in, in your supply chain. But what's, what's happening in those communities? What's, what's impacting you know, people? Uh, stakeholder power was a, a, a fourth. And that's really about uh, stakeholders that might be inside your organization, like your employees, could be external stakeholders like your customers or your suppliers or people that might be influencers on your business. Maybe they're making new laws or regulations uh, or, or they're community leaders. Environmental degradation is another. 
And when we take a look at, I mean, every business has some kind of an environmental impact. Certainly if you're making things or you're transporting things, it's going to be bigger than others. But even, you know, the way you choose to operate within your office buildings or the transportation that you might use to on business trips has, has a key part to play in that. So taking a look at what's your environmental impact, and not just from a, not from a tree hugger perspective, but how do I do this more efficiently, more effectively? What what might be coming down the pike in terms of changing regulations that might affect my business or shortages of certain materials that might affect my business? Uh, globalization. Certainly all these things are interconnected around the world. We cannot you know, ever just say, well, that's their problem because their problem becomes our problem. Mm-hmm. And sometimes our, our solutions become their solutions. And, well, and it the is. The last one was population growth. Yeah, and that one we are going to talk about, and I'm sure that the demographics and population growth have definitely had an impact on everybody's business. I mean, we are in definitely a world which um, not only do we have different diversities of people, um, but we have more movement around the globe, which is affecting uh, our businesses. Now, you in your introductory to your book, Diana, 911 had a real impact on your career and trajectory in your life. Um, can you tell the listeners your story and why that impetus, that particular impetus, um, was so important to you writing this book? Hmm. Well, I would say, uh, you know, certainly each of us, if we live long enough, we have these these key turning points in our lives. And and 911 was certainly one for me. I had been working working for Gartner as the vice president for organization development. And yeah, my plan was, well, I'll go to work for Gartner, maybe five or six years, start my own consulting business, see how that goes. And 9-11 was really close to my heart. I, I grew up on Long Island, was still living um, in New York at, at that time, working in Connecticut. And I was, I was up in my office in Connecticut and Stanford, and I, I could not get home. And I couldn't reach my family for the longest time because the phone lines were tied up. And and my sister's husband, Jim, was um, uh, a fireman in New York City. And when I saw those that, that first tower come down and then that second tower and heard about all those, um, the policemen and fire firefighters who were in those in those buildings, I, 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 you know, just had no idea what had happened to my family. And thankfully he was okay, uh, only because he had the day off. And um, Jim ended up losing... Every every guy in his squad who was working that day died. So there were about a dozen of them, uh-huh. and, and so some of his closest friends just perished in in an instant, really. And it was one of those times where it just made me take take a look at my life and, and take stock and say, I don't think I'm going to delay that dream. I think I'm going now. So I, I left a very good job with a very good company and launched uh, a consulting firm with no clients. I wouldn't advise this as a really good you know business piece of advice. It, it happened to work well for me. It wasn't very long before I had a few really key long-term clients, and I was really focused on how do I take all the knowledge from you know my many years of doing this kind of work internally, and and help different kinds of organizations to set up strategies, work, uh, uh, evolve their organizations, evolve their cultures, work within their their leadership team to really. Uh, become the best that they can be and and deal with some of these outside forces, but also deal with their own inside forces. Mm -hmm. Because all too often we get in our own way as organizations. Now, that obviously was your turning point for your own consulting firm and doing what you were doing. 
And and one of the things that you have is you have lots of great stories in your book. And for some of my listeners, she's got stories about different companies and how they've restructured and the way things have impacted them, everybody from Nike to UPS. But you speak about the Nike story and the disruptive forces at play um, that affected their business. Um, talk to my listeners about your observations of what happened with Inside Nike at that time and what Nike really learned and what you think they continue to apply today as a very astute business who's uh, weathered many, many storms. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of Nike. I think they're, they're doing some wonderfully innovative things and some very socially responsible things and profit, profiting as a business as well. Um, the research I did on Nike, I should say they were not one of my clients, so I did not work in, internally with them. Right. But uh, there's just so much um, so much information about what Nike has gone through over the years and what they're doing right now. So um, many of us may, may remember, you know, the news from in the – it was in the, in the late 90s where uh, Nike came under attack for some of uh, its suppliers' uh, labor practices. Right. And you know, Nike responded back then, as as many companies do, to just say, "Well, you know what? We've got agreements with these suppliers where we tell them to treat you know their workers well, but they're really not our employees. We don't own those factories. We don't own those supply chains. So we don't have much influence there. Kind of, kind of that, like that's not you know that's not up to me. Kind of, kind of response. And and people were just appalled by that by that answer. And there was an, an incredible amount of boycotting of Nike products, people burning Nike shoes, and 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 different advocacy groups and and individuals just um, and, and consumers just demanding some action. So in 1998, the company's earnings dropped by 69 percent, which is just a tremendous backlash to say, hey, you have to care about society, you have to care about the people that are working for you and are working with you in these supply chains. And that was that was kind of a turning point for Nike and for many others in, in the apparel industry and in, and in manufacturing period, because they they had to start to figure out well how do I how do I make sure that I own what's happening in my supply chain and not just what's happening within my you know the walls of my operations. And you need to take these days you need to take a look at not just what's happening you know upstream you know, down from you but also well where, where do things go after they leave your door. What happens to your products then? And then, you know, where do they go at the end of life? And taking a look at a more circular economy. So I'm I'm a big fan of Nike because I think they're just doing some tremendous work to be innovative in the environmental space and in the social space. And and they've shown some great leadership in in that area, including collaborating with their competitors. Well, I I would say one of the things that they've done with relation to their labor is they've certainly cleaned themselves up and they've become transparent. Um, They're Mm -hmm. allowing the outside public to see in and kind of look inside and say, okay, these were the conditions. These kind of are the conditions now because it's had such an impact on their sales, like you said. Um, And they did observe that as an opportunity to actually shift how transparent they were with society, right? Absolutely. Yeah, transparency is something that's absolutely required these days. Uh-huh. So, now so if, you, you, if you read the recent um, uh, the Harvard Business Review every year does uh, an article around the top 100 CEOs around the world uh, for public companies. And uh-huh. they um, this year they decided to add to the criteria uh, social responsibility. So they looked uh-huh. at the environmental, social, and, and governance practices for each company and, and gave a score that weighed, I think, about – 20% of the total. So 80% was still based upon financials. Well, when you took a look at the results of that, 
that dramatically shifted people to, you know, the middle or the bottom of the list versus being at the top. Right. Like Amazon right. was one. It would have been number one just on financials alone, but I think it dropped down to like 87 once you put in the environmental, social, and governance aspects. Uh-huh. But Novo Nordisk what, what ended up being number one because they have a good score on environmental, social, and governance, but they would also only be number six on on financial, so a very financially profitable organization. Well, and I think it's important. It speaks loudly to stakeholders, especially stakeholders who are stockholders, who are saying, uh, hey, look, I want to invest into socially responsible businesses. Today, mm-hmm. where these companies get their money come from people who are investing, who are actually looking at it, and the growth in social responsible investing has skyrocketed over the last 10 years, and I think it's really important. Now, can you address this growing population shift in demographics and the effects that it'll have on businesses, both positively and negatively? Look, we're approaching 7 billion, or maybe we're in excess of 7 billion now. This is a worldwide economy. Um, People are shipping things all over the world. It's very apparent. Um, How do you see our population growth having positive effects. We got older population now uh, that we're concerned about uh, having to take care of. We're seeing people living longer, uh, costing our government more. What are the impacts that you see overall to business and what are the positives and negatives? Mm, Tremendous. And and one of the ways I positioned this book is not like, oh, doomsday. Here are the challenges, here are the opportunities. Because it, you know, if you if you find a problem to solve, you've got some some great opportunities out there. But on the population shifts, uh, the we've actually hit seven billion in 2011, mm-hmm. and the United Nations projects that we're going to get to over nine billion by 2050. You know, and sadly, when you think about the economic impact and the environmental impact, I mean, much of this growth is going to occur in the poorest countries in the world. Uh-huh. So, and, and today we already have 4 billion people, more than half of the world's population that live on less than $2.50 a day. And that's, you know, that's amazing you know, to, you know, to me and to others when they hear that statistic. And when you take a look at uh, some of the reports out there that predict by 2030 that threats to food security due to population growth and, and related issues of water scarcity and deforestation could escalate our, our global food prices up, upwards of 70 to 90 percent from from where they are today. Yeah. So great economic challenges, great you know environmental challenges, and even if you just kind of take it a bit closer to home, you know we take a look at the whole like aging baby boomer population and and the aging of society in in our more developed nations. And uh, one of the things you didn't mention, Greg, on, on my bio is uh, I about a year or so ago I, I took um, a, a job opportunity with one of my clients as uh, their senior vice president for people and culture. And, and this company is called SeniorLink, and at, at SeniorLink, um, it's a healthcare organization focused on shifting how we care for our families, how we care for our elders, how we care for adults with disabilities, to keep them in the home, very often with their own family caregivers. Uh-huh. And it's a, it's a bit of a disruptive uh, model in the healthcare space because it's not traditional home health, and it's not you know the, the long-term you know nursing care facility. It's you know having a full-time live-in caregiver that gets paid a stipend and has access to a care team, a nurse and a social worker, to help to, to help oversee that plan of care. Uh-huh. And then you add technology to that that can provide additional support to this population and to other caregivers. So with the growing need, you know, 66 million caregivers in the United States alone, part-time and full-time, 
and they're thrust into this new role because of the aging population. So you need different models, you need different technology to help address that. Well, and and I've been to many of these conferences on aging and, and so on, because I get around having done almost uh, 600 interviews to, to date. Um, you know, you're finding companies like Qualcomm, for instance, uh, you know, and all these things in the seniors, you're talking about technology, I find it fascinating. Um, devices on the toilet, devices on the refrigerator that actually um, will alert the family if they're living alone, mm -hmm. um, saying, yeah. hey, look, they haven't been in the refrigerator. They haven't been to the toilet. They haven't been. And I'm sitting here going, wow, that's pretty cool wow. technology to be able to tell people that maybe something's wrong with mom or dad or what's going on. So we need to check in um, with these sensory devices that are on all of these mechanisms that are being used in the home. I thought it was just a fascinating play and using technology. So again, another mm -hmm. way to solve a problem, right? You found a company that used to make cell phones is now making sensor devices in the medical side of things or calling it medical uh, to help people understand what's going on with their parents in the home. Um, right. You speak about the circle of perspective. Now, this was a really big part in your book and the shifting of our mental models. And obviously it's right up my alley with a degree in spiritual psychology. How are you gonna assist businesses and people in them adapting adopting and thriving in this coming global shift? Because this is really all about our mind shift. It's about how we look at everything. And you have a good part in the book about that. Yeah, in fact, uh, Greg, that's one of the reasons that I put that in at the very start of the book. It's in the second chapter in the New Corporate Facts of Life because after describing what these forces are, it, it becomes really important to say, well, if you don't truly reset your mindset, around the possibilities here, the challenges and the opportunities, then all you're going to do is make some incremental change in you know, the interest of, let's say, risk management. But if you, if you can truly understand how do we form our mindsets and, and how can we shift them, how can we open our minds to other possibilities and be willing to explore those, that's when you can really just open up opportunities for your business and open up your eyes to potential risks out there as well. And that's uh -huh. true for you know any size business, but it's one of the things that I, I will I will teach leaders and teams over and over and over again is you need to understand mindsets. You need to understand how we form them and how we break them, because uh -huh. if, if you don't start to look at things differently, you won't even collaborate well on a small team, let alone be able to run you know a, a business into the future. Well, the whole world of positive psychology has ex just expanded so much and there's so much for people to learn. And actually, us actually, the brain science of actually rewiring our neural pathways has become just such a huge science, but an opportunity for people to learn how to do that. Now, you mentioned that having a compelling vision that aligns with the values and the purpose is imperative, but that there are risks to organizations without this vision and alignment. Speak with me and our listeners, if you would, about the risks that these companies have, because this is probably, again, one of the foundational, most important things, and you see this happening in companies all over the place, not having a compelling vision for that culture, not giving people with inside the business the opportunity to really express and share their value that they have to the company. What's one thing you would tell our listeners today about getting people engaged, especially upper management, to make that happen? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, it's so critical to have a, a good, strong vision for your organization, and that needs to be aligned to your core values. It's not just, well, here are the goals for the year. This is this is much broader. This is a bigger picture. This is like a take-your-breath-away kind of vision for your organization that people are going to really, really rally, rally around. Um, you know, with 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 SeniorLink, when when new people come into the organization, when they're in the interview process, they're like, "I didn't even know this model existed. I I want to come work here." You want people to have that kind of a feeling in your organization, and that means you need to align it to your values, but you also need to to align it to your culture. You need to align it to your business practices, so that you're not speaking one thing but then acting in a in a completely different way. Uh-huh. And and. And certainly getting, you know, getting in, input throughout the organization on a regular basis as to do people understand the vision. Are they, do they understand their alignment to it as a, as a key way of engaging people? If you can see your line of sight to the bigger picture in the organization, you are, you are going to be far more engaged and motivated than if you just think, I, I'm coming here to do my job description. Yeah, it is uh, so important to have, again, a management of the company that's got this compelling vision and that's permeated through the DNA of the culture of the organization. Now you have a great story in the book about UPS and that them utilizing sustainable practices as a way to maintain this competitive advantage. And obviously we all know people who are getting packages from you know, Amazon and all the other places today, it's just become a burgeoning business. What are some of the things that UPS does in your estimation to stay ahead of the game and to make sure that you know they're doing this as sustainably as possible. Yeah, that was that was a fascinating uh, case study for me, and uh, and I have to I have to thank their uh, their CFO Kurt Kuhn for for giving me so much access to to the organization and to their executives. But um, it's interesting they you know they've been working on sustainability for decades. And initially, it kind of came out of efficiency and, and operational effectiveness. As, as a company that is, is highly unionized, they need to really take a, you know, take a look at every single dollar that they're using in terms of um, efficiencies. And when, they, and when you consider that they have, I think it's the eighth largest airline fleet in the world and and I think the largest privately owned fleet in 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 the in the world then you think about every little thing that you can do to shave off a little bit of fuel consumption or to test out you know new energy efficient vehicles out there makes a tremendous difference across the board so you know sustainability became something that was kind of an efficiency thing, and now it's it's almost like a mantra to them. They just really are are looking at it and are very very dedicated to the environmental impacts and measuring those and the social impact because they're a very socially responsible company and they're very they're very committed to their employees as well most definitely, and you can see that um again, as big as they are, I don't know how many they employ, what are they upwards of three hundred thousand something like that it's It's a huge workforce so you know, mm-hmm. to keep to keep in the game sustainably with that big of a workforce mm-hmm. requires a whole sustain department on sustainability to help them get there. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely, and it has and to be integrated with all other departments. It's not just oh, like okay, that's their job, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a big game at UPS. I mean, logistics in mm-hmm. itself is just such a major industry. I used to do some speaking for the logistics industry, so I understand mm-hmm. um, what they're up against and all of the odds that they've got and in factors they're having to um, actually function, you know, put into this factor. It's crazy. 
You speak yeah, about think about think about drones. I mean, like uh, those little drones that we keep seeing on TV that Amazon yeah. wants to use. Well, if Amazon yeah. starts to send out all their packages by drones, well, there goes a whole bunch of business from UPS. <laughs> well, it's you know it it is something that will probably happen. I think there are, again when you look at regulatory issues for doing that, and now all the stuff that's <laughs> coming up yeah. with the with the uh, aviation administration and so on. Um, they got their work cut out for them, but I'm sure it will happen at some point. And you speak about how important it is to define the ideal culture. What advice would you provide to the listeners out there who either own a business or they're involved in an organization about defining what you refer to as an ideal culture? Yeah, I, I think well, the culture starts from the very, very beginning. So even if you're a small business, if you're the founder, you're the you're the, the first CEO of the organization, and you're just hiring your first few people, that's your opportunity to really set the tone right away for for your organization. And and as it grows and as it evolves, you know, then different leaders come on board, and they have you know different uh, things that they bring to the table. And and every single person that you bring on board shapes the culture. I mean, even in my small consulting practice, I would I would focus on what is really important to us. Whether you were a consultant working with us on just a project, or you or you were a full time employee, and you know, so as you grow and evolve, one of the things you have to take a look at, especially if you're in fast growth mode, is to make sure that you are selecting people that um, not just fit your culture today, but also will will be able to take you to where you want it to go. And not just have the right, you know, degree or skill set or years of experience behind them. Uh-huh. You know, I like I like to say here at at, at SeniorLink that we have a I, I tell candidates that we have a jerk-free philosophy. We really try not to hire jerks, especially in leadership roles, uh-huh. because that's really detrimental to our business. And, and, and you know, the culture is just as important as the competence. Yeah, and it, I think it's important in a small business as well as a business the size of of uh, UPS to really work mm-hmm. on the culture. You know, it, I don't care if you're a mom and pop with five employees or three or whatever it is. Uh, the whole essence of the culture is what has you help keep and attract and retain good people that will stay with you and grow with you as well. And I think that's a key. Right, right. Now you have a and you take a look at things that happen in the world, that, and you've got things like uh, what recently happened with Volkswagen. And you know that there's not just like one rogue engineer out there trying to rig up the emissions you know, process. This is something that has had to have been kind of bleeding through their culture somewhere. You know, same thing with corruption practices that might occur you know, throughout the world in an organization or the robo-signing practices that occurred with you know, the mortgage uh, industry a few years ago. Like, these are things that are, you know, end up being in your culture somewhere, and it can be very, very toxic. And when, it, when a culture is strong, like a Novo Nordisk, which is very, very committed to to its values, values and to its mission, then it's an incredibly powerful force in a positive way. So you have a stakeholder engagement process that you talk about. And um, how would you recommend to our listeners to develop this process with their stakeholders? Well, certainly there are times where you just need to make a decision and go. But um, there are other times where if you do not get you know, your stakeholders involved, then you may be doing a whole lot of rework and a whole lot of apologizing, you know, fixing down the road. So certainly you want to take a look at, well, what level of engagement do we really need? Who are the key stakeholders, internal and external, that may need to be involved? And then, you know, there are different methods that are, that are talked about in the new corporate facts of life about, about how to engage them. You know, some of these are, are large-scale uh, engagement sessions where you can bring you know, many people together or, or do them in smaller group interviews. And, Greg, you were mentioning the whole positive psychology movement. 
one of the methodologies I really like for for engagement or for or for change or for positive change is a model called appreciative inquiry. Mm-hmm. And what, are you familiar with it? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. appreciative inquiry is really you know you're using the appreciative part is understanding the strengths and the assets of the organization and setting that compelling vision for where do you want to go. And that's where you focus the energy, not on what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. And and then you also take a look at the inquiry part, which is asking a lot of questions, asking people to share stories, asking people to talk about you know ideas for, for moving forward. If we were to accomplish this, what might it look like? What's your role in that? So it's a way to really get people highly energized and focused on being proud of where they are and, and working together collaboratively to move forward into the future. So... I'd like to wrap our interview up here, Diana, with this question. You have at the end of your book these 10 strategies for developing a resilient organization. Um, And I'm not just talking about big companies. I'm talking about any organization because in today's environment, both financially, uh, from a standpoint of personnel, it's important to be resilient. Can you give us the top three that you think are the most important ones for any organization to stay resilient in these changing times that we're in? Hmm. Uh, well, well, first, I, I guess what would be the number one that I had down here would be to design your organization in consideration of anticipated and unanticipated challenges. So it's like, well, what might come our way that we can think of and what might be kind of like, that's not likely, but you know, we need to be flexible enough to, to deal with that should it come about. Um, I think having a... Um, Distributing accountability and authority throughout the organization is an important one under structure and to make sure that people can make decisions closest to the customer or closest to their role and not have to you know, get stuck in, in bureaucracy. That's not very resilient. That's not very flexible. And I think taking a look at um, how you connect, uh, how you integrate your systems and processes across different functional areas so that you, you link different groups and, and networks to, to get things done. And I know you only asked me for three, Greg, but I have to put in a fourth, which is okay. really the people practices. If uh-huh. you don't, if you don't truly attract, develop, deploy, and retain the right people, then you can't make any system or process or strategy work. Well, those are great uh, points for people to remember around resiliency. Where would you recommend that our listeners go to learn about the new corporate facts of life? How to contact either you or watch some videos about you? Um, where do you want to direct them? Uh, I would say they can certainly contact me through LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, I also have uh, my Twitter site, which is at Sustainable Orgs. Okay. And, and uh, on LinkedIn, you'll be able to see some videos of, of me as well. Uh, and there are some on YouTube. And at strategic-imperatives.com, correct? Yes, exactly. So for my listeners, those are the three places you can reach Diana. Diana, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending just a few minutes with us talking about a very dynamic subject and one that's affecting every business person out there and all of you are listening. Um, Diana, thanks for your words of wisdom and thanks for imparting them on us. And again, for all my listeners, go out and get a copy of this book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your best booksellers. Um, I'm sure it's downloadable as a Kindle as well. Um, Diana, thanks for being on today. Oh, my pleasure.